Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. My guest on today's show, Terry S., first overdosed on pain meds when she was only six years old. Living in a Brooklyn apartment with her father, who was a heavy drinker, and her mother, who was chronically ill, suffering with Crohn's disease, Terry had been given a tablet for stomach pain, likely exacerbated by her dysfunctional home life. Reasoning that if one pill eased her pain, the whole bottle would be even better, Terry found and swallowed all of her mother's pain tablets. She somehow survived, but the die was cast for a life dominated by drugs and alcohol. By 14, she was actively using and drinking to escape the harsh realities of her home life. By her late teens and 20s, she was flaunting an ability to drink and drug more than her peers. Very much the functional alcoholic, Terry continued drinking and using largely without major consequences, but her life was slowly spiraling downward. By her early 40s, at the point at which her alcoholism and drug addiction were winning the battle, Terry was faced with the cold reality that if she didn't stop, she was going to lose both her husband and her job. Making the right decision at the right time, Terry finally made it into AA in 2001 until a week-long slip on pain meds in 2003. She quickly redoubled her efforts in the program through intensive work with her sponsor. She also became actively involved in service work for her group, which she credits with helping her stay firmly attached to AA. Over the years, Terry has made regular meetings a mainstay of her recovery. She's also sponsored many women in the program as insurance against that next drink. In the midst of working a good AA program and passing on to others those many gifts of sobriety she has achieved, Terry has fought her own battle with the same Crohn's disease that afflicted her mother. Fortunately, she has responsibly handled the medical interventions necessary for living with that disease while maintaining complete accountability to her sponsor and fellow AA members. Terry's ability to stay sober through AA has very much informed her daily battle with Crohn's disease and vice versa. For those recovering alcoholics who face similar battles, Terry's experience speaks of hope for living with whatever health challenges come our way. I'm grateful Terry agreed to share her remarkable story of healing and courage on this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. So please enjoy the next 60 minutes with my friend and AA sister, Terry S. Hi, I'm Terry. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Terry. I really appreciate you joining me today on AA Recovery Interviews. It's a real pleasure to see you uh, outside of the Zoom meeting that you and I go to once a week. And I've gotten to hear you share on there little bits and pieces of your story, but you're joining me from Miami, aren't you? Actually, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I actually went on my honeymoon to Fort Lauderdale from Texas. You? All and you those stayed years married. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. I mean, that was 35, over 35 years ago. Good for you. I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this today. My pleasure. You've been doing a lot of service for that Zoom meeting, but before we move along, I wanted to just ask you, how long have you been sober? Actually, my sobriety date is the same day as my birthday, which is August 9th, 2003. Wow. Okay. So you have coming up on 19 years. Correct. Amazing. That is pretty wild. And you've been doing some great service work on that Zoom meeting that you and I know each other from. 
How is being of service in the Zoom age feel to you, and, and how does it affect your quality of your sobriety? Well, to be perfectly honest, Howard, this, this whole pandemic has been a silver lining to me. Has it? Yeah, well, unfortunately, I had to postpone my interview with you last week due to some chronic pain I suffer with sometimes. Mm. And um, the Zoom, you know, I became the little old lady that brought the pillow to the meeting to sit on <laughs> to be comfortable. Yeah, Zoom came along just in time for me to be really comfortable at home. I did start my home group meeting on Zoom when we figured out how to do that. And so Zoom has been a lifesaver to me and it brought me to you yeah, and countless others internationally. So I'm, I absolutely love it. Isn't it marvelous that we're able to use yeah. the technology? Somebody reminded me of something that I had completely forgotten. And that is somewhere in the forward to the fourth edition, there's something that talks about talking modem to modem. And uh, it, it, it hadn't even occurred to me that the sort of things we've been doing with Zoom were already thought of back in 2001. Exactly. But I remember going to the International Convention in San Antonio or Atlanta. They have a room there where the international, the loners in AA via the computer. So Zoom wasn't new for AA, certainly. Now, do you go to fewer or more meetings now than you did before the pandemic? Um, right now, I'd say it's about the same. Uh, it's probably like four meetings a week, mm -hmm. if not more, sometimes less. Are you getting out to live meetings? I went to three live meetings since uh, the rooms did open up, and it was great. It was different, and I'm just much more comfortable at home. Mm -hmm. I really am, especially now that it's resurfacing, resurging with the uh, pandemic. Who knows? Who knows? I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable. You know, Howard, I'm a loner who happens to love people. Uh -huh. <laughs> so somebody pointed out a long time ago when we started this and, and we would do FaceTime actually on Facebook before Zoom. Mm -hmm. They would say this is a virtual meeting. There's nothing virtual about this. This is live. You know, there you are. I'm seeing you. We're, we're here live. Yeah, we're communicating back and forth in real time, one-on-one, -on -one, person to person. Yeah, exactly. I have a pretty open attitude towards it. I go to three or four live meetings a week, but I also go to three or four Zoom meetings a week because these are people who I've gotten to know and love along the way. And it's always great to be able to interview them. In fact, I think I sent you the little list of all the people from that particular meeting that we go to. Great. And I'm not going to name the meeting because I don't want them to get overwhelmed in case people want to go to that. So I, I usually keep that anonymous. But that particular meeting, we've had, I don't know, six or eight people from that meeting do their, tell their stories in this interview format, and it's worked out quite well. And I've listened to quite a few of them. It's great. Oh, good. It's great. Good. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. So let me ask you, we're looking back at August of 2003. What was happening just prior to you getting to AA? Was it a sudden uh, entry into the program? Was it gradual? What was going on? Well, to be honest, it was really gradual. Mm -hmm. I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous in the early 80s to a really good friend of mine who decided to get sober mm -hmm. and knew, rightfully so, that I could use a, a seat in AA, but would never suggest it to me. And I missed her company. I'm like, where are you going? What are you doing? You know, like I missed my partying buddy. Mm -hmm. And um, and she kind of drifted away, And but we remained good friends. And then I 
moved to a building and the guy that lived on <laughs> upstairs from me, when I'd run into him in the hallway downstairs, the lobby, he said, you want to go to a meeting? <laughs> I didn't even know this guy. And I'm like, why is he, you know, now this is in the 90s, early 90s. I'm like, why is he saying I need a meeting? But actually, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous uh, in 1994 for myself to get the boyfriend back. Uh-huh. Okay. Which I did and uh, did the first three steps, got on my knees and did that third step prayer without mm-hmm. being struck by lightning or God and never continued with the steps. And after about six months, never really continued with the meetings at Cater Met. Was that an ultimatum that you were given, either go to AA or we break up type thing? or No. What made you decide in 94 to go? Uh, I knew that I had lost the best thing that was probably ever going to come into my life. I mean, he's a terrific man. We're still together today. And uh, he was a blind date uh, in 93, and thank God I brought my seeing eye dog. <laughs> and uh, my seeing eye dog was able to tell me, you know, you don't want this one to go, you know. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I did it to get him back. You saw that for yourself. It wasn't, it, that was something you came to on your own as opposed to him saying, Terry, we got to talk or you've got to stop or slow down. He doesn't like confrontation, and he just quietly disappeared after three months of dating huh. and um it it dawned on me that he's just drifting out i had to track him down and go what's the matter what happened and he said we're just not on the same page hmm. and that's when i called that guy that lived upstairs and said i'm ready to go to that meeting now this is in 1994 that you're talking about right yes correct mm-hmm. so looking back did you perceive your behavior as an alcoholic or maybe a problem drinker or a heavy drinker did you perceive that at the time that you went into aa in 94 or were you going in simply because you thought it was the best way to get him back i think a little of both uh-huh. um it, it was it already not working anymore by the time of my uh, incomprehensible demoralization? <laughs> I was uh, taking an enormous amount of oxycontin, and uh, and that was just to stop shaking. Mm-hmm. That hadn't arisen yet when I first got sober in '94 uh, to get him back and to maybe curtail my drinking or drug using. But I did stay with the program. I stayed completely dry. I say dry because I didn't continued with the steps or a sponsor mm-hmm. for about 14 months. Wow. And uh, yeah, we were together on a beautiful day in Coconut Grove, mm-hmm. rollerblading for the first time ever. Sky was incredibly blue and um, having a great morning. And we decided to stop for lunch in the Grove and I open up the menu and on the left-hand side of the menu are drinks, but they're called painkillers. One, <laughs> two or three. And I looked across the table at him, and I'm having a great day. Yeah. I wanted to get better. And I said, you know, honey, I could really use a painkiller, number three. And what does he say? He's not one of us. Honey, you've been good. Have one. And I downed two of those, and within a matter of 15 minutes, it became like he was Charlie Brown. Wah, 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 wah. His lips were moving. <laughs> and all I could hear in the background was, Okay, what did Alcoholics Anonymous do to me? I didn't even feel that. I, I just drank two drinks. and my, I'm not even buzzed. Yeah, that's how my thinking went for the rest of the day. So in the 14 months that you had been around AA, you'd been dry. doesn't sound like you were participating very much in the program or doing much of the work. No, 
I was not doing service. I was not, um, I, it was more of a social thing when I'd show up. Yeah, I get that. But yet, even if all you did was just go to meetings and didn't do much of anything else, you'd still be hearing the message over and over and over again in meetings and from people you hang out with. You know, it's that first drink, uh, stay away from that first drink. As you were reaching for that painkiller number three, what crossed your mind? Uh, I probably should not be doing this. Uh huh. That's what crossed my mind. But I had no None of that foundation that we hear of building in AA. I may have had a leg, <laughs> maybe even two legs, mm-hmm. but that triangle just was not there. And I had no tools in my pocket to stop me. That mental obsession, you know, the desire kicked in and then the, the mental obsession just and compulsion got out of control. Within days, I was asking my neighbor for a painkiller for this or that. And uh, that led to a seven-year relapse. Mm-hmm. Seven years, yeah, a struggle to get back in. I just was out there. I shouldn't say a struggle to get back in until I really hit that incomprehensible demoralization and called work in a blackout, and this was 2001 in May, that I'm really sick and I need help. Couldn't stop. Yeah, as in I can't stop drinking or using. Right. Of course, in those days, most HR departments and EAPs were pretty circumspect about working with people who had drug and alcohol problems. That was kind of the heyday of treatment centers and everything else. Did you go to treatment uh, after that? I did wind up in a four-day detox because that's all my insurance would cover. Oh, wow. But I really, um, I, I was managing a chiropractic office at the time. We did have uh, an internist working with us at the time. And again, I came to work in, in a blackout, basically called work about an hour later, because that's how long I lasted on a Monday. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm in trouble, I need help. And uh, a girl called me back and said, uh, and I didn't even like her. She was, she always got things done in the office and I didn't <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, I, get it. I was like, how do you do that? How do you get that done, finished, completed? But she said, she offered to take me to the hospital. Yeah, and that miracle started happening when I wound up in that detox. So you detoxed for four days, and Mm -hmm. what was the next step you took after the detox? Right back to that same group I went to in 1994. Now, they had moved from the end of the street to the middle of the uh, strip mall, but they were still there. And I got there early because I do like to show up early, and there were no cars in the parking lot at first. And I'm, mind you, I'm... 30 pounds lighter than I am today, pretty thin, Uh and could barely stand up. The door was open, the circles and the triangle were on the window, and I said, what happened? There's no more alcoholics here? And there was a guy painting the three men in the bed on the wall, the mural, (laughs) and he took one look at me, and he saw like the deer in the headlight look, and he said, don't worry, you're in the right place. And he sat me down, he made me a cup of coffee, made me feel at home. And I didn't even question. I just felt safe being there. It was like my shoulders came down and I'm like, okay. I didn't even start to go, where is everybody? But I just felt comfortable sitting there. What happened was I arrived a half hour early before the meeting started. Yeah, and most people don't show up till 10 or 5 minutes before the meeting actually starts. Right. Which never made sense to me. I always enjoyed the fellowship so much that I like to get to meetings early. Me too. So that was in 2001 Mm -hmm. that you found yourself back in AA. How did you feel about going back to AA? Was there a sense of having been beaten or did you feel desperation? What were your feelings around going back? 
to be perfectly honest, Howard, I felt such relief. Hmm. I felt such relief. I felt hope mm-hmm. for the first time, which I always heard around the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I remember hearing the laughter of people telling me their horrific stories and then going to, to Lums and having coffee and laughing about it after. Uh-huh. I, I want to get to where they are, yeah. where they could laugh about what I've just been through. So there was a lot of hope and there was a lot of, thank God this monkey is off my back, because by the time I did get back to the rooms, the obsession had been lifted. And, I, and when I got to that meeting, the guy who set me up with the coffee, he indicated to the first woman that walked into that room, why don't you go sit next to her? She's new. Mm-hmm. And that was unbeknownst to me. She had white hair, these piercing blue eyes, <laughs> seemed to be my age. And I knew I needed some spiritual guidance because I was always, I was this person without a God. I had a belief in something. I considered myself agnostic always. And this time I was going to be a real willing agnostic. And I kept tugging at her shoulder during the meeting. Would you sponsor me? Just her look. <laughs> I her look alone. Will you sponsor me? And then... Uh, She finally said yes. And then after the meeting, she asked me those three questions. She said, have you had enough? And I said, absolutely. She said, are you willing to take suggestions? And I said, most definitely. And then she said, how do you feel about God? And I went, "Uh, two out of three is not bad, is it? (laughs) (laughs) And she didn't laugh. But she immediately said to me, what's your favorite color? And I said, blue. She goes, well, just for today, anytime you see the color blue, you'll know God's with you. And again, my shoulders came down and I was like, that's it? And she said, just for today, Terry, that's it. That's all you have to believe. And I started driving home from the, I get chills every time I keep that because uh, unfortunately she did pass away from cancer. um, And she gave me that blue God of my understanding that, uh, that worked for a really long time. Isn't it amazing how a good sponsor can turn you completely around? That's such a beautiful thing to say, too. Imagine anytime you see the color blue, that's God in the room or in your environment. And, oh, driving home from that meeting, I started noticing all the blue cars. <laughs> I started noticing the fire hydrants in my, in my area were painted blue, blue caps. I said, oh, look at that, God's on the fire hydrant. And, you know, it's pretty wild. Yeah, I love that. That's such a great, such a great story. So this is 2001. You came back, but you mentioned that your sobriety date is actually in in uh, August of 2003. Correct. So what went on in the two years in between you coming back and the obsession being lifted, and the need to come back in 2003? Well, I was on that proverbial pink cloud of AA. Mm-hmm. I was immersed. In my meeting, I was dragged into service unwillingly, uh, but I did it anyway. And I had a flare up with my Crohn's Mm -hmm. and I was in severe pain. And my doctor, knowing that I was in recovery, was kind of insistent that I take some pain meds along with prednisone, which is miracle drug, but the side effects will kill you, my mother always used to say. And my mother did pass away from Crohn's related illness at 52. Mm-hmm. So I was always battling with that. What am I going to do about this? But um, he was going to put me in the hospital if I did not take these painkillers and have me hooked up. Uh-huh. So 
I went home on this pink cloud and I get the prescription. My sponsor offered to hold them. And I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm good. And my boyfriend offered to hold them. I'm like, I'm really good. But you know, Howard, I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Yeah. And I looked at the label and it said, take one to two every four hours. And being such a good alcoholic, I took two immediately. Yeah, why not? Yeah, sure. <laughs> and yeah. within a matter of four hours, within a matter of 15 minutes, I should say, I'm looking at my watch going, is it four hours yet? And within a day, I was taking them as wanted instead of as prescribed. And those were your recreational drug of choice, weren't they? Um, along the lines yeah. of that, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how far into your first stint at sobriety there, well, not counting the early 90s, but let's say in 2001, how how long after you came back did that occur that you slipped? Uh, two years, right after the two-year mark. So right after the two-year mark, you came back. I got struck with pain oh, my. <laughs> in 2003. Uh-huh. So that's uh, my sponsor knew that i was going to have to pick up another white ship the fellowship that i was in my group members knew but because of the way i looked on the medication with the pregnisone you know being extremely puffy they would come up to me and say oh don't worry terry this is medically necessary and i (laughs) i said you know i know what i'm doing is wrong you know I have no problem picking up uh, a new, uh, starting my day over. Mm -hmm. And my birthday was rolling around. And I said, you know what? I may have gotten sober a day before or so my birthday, but I said, let's pick up a white chip on my birthday. And it's been the best gift I've ever given myself or received. Yeah, that is a beautiful gift. So if we rewind a little bit, what was going on in your early life, let's say in your family of origin, that paved the way for you to become a alcoholic slash addict? Good question. Where it always starts, isn't it? Uh, uh, what I hear mostly in the rooms anyway. Uh, I'm the youngest of three, middle class family, uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh-huh. Jewish I always say it's not my fault. I was just born that way. Yeah. In Brooklyn and Jewish. I get it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's not my fault. I was just born that way. And look, because I don't know which came first the alcoholism, the uh, depression, the the Jewish guilt. Who knows? Yeah. And my my father drank heavily and my mother took pills heavily. Mm. As a matter of fact, I had my first overdose when I was six years old. Six years old. Yes. My mother gave me this magic little pill, which stopped my stomach from hurting because I had diarrhea and she had Crohn's. Mm -hmm. And unbeknownst to me, uh, where she kept the pills was on top of the medic, actually in the kitchen by the sink in the cabinet. And I knew, Howard, at the age of six, if that one little pill made me feel that good, Mm -hmm. the whole bottle probably gonna make me feel a lot better and I climbed up took the whole bottle proceeded to like you know just sit outside the kitchen my mother was busy in the room doing whatever she was doing but I I don't know what time later she found me laying against the wall and I finally confessed to her I took the whole bottle oh my god now now, believe it or not, her doctor said, well, it will pass. How many were left in the bottle? I, I can't imagine to this day that a mother didn't take, drag the kid to the hospital and pump the stomach. But that wasn't done. And later that night, 
from what my sister told me, it was a, a neighbor that was a doctor that saved my life. He said, you must keep her awake. You must keep her drinking coffee. She has to get this out of her system and don't let her go to sleep. Mm. So for 24 hours, they had me pacing around the house, up and downstairs, and people were coming over and playing with her. You're just a little kid at that time. Yeah, but you want to hear something really wild? I had my first spiritual experience at that age also. Huh. As I was laying on my parents' bed, I could hear, and my face was down, and I could feel like a hand on my back. Mm -hmm. And I swear I could hear people saying, we're losing her. Mm. We're losing her. And I, I got up from the bed. Mm -hmm. This is all in my head. And I'm flying. I'm flying throughout the house, and I'm flying through every room in that house. I see my brother sketching in his bed. And I'm just about to go through the break front window of the house, and I feel these hands pull me back down onto the bed with a hand back on my back. And I guess I'm supposed to be here. Yeah, there's more, there's more than one story like that, that I just got stupid lucky. It's kind of an out-of-body experience, huh? Oh, literally, physically, <laughs> mentally, and spiritually, yes. To have it that young in life, too. And that was during my questioning years of about God. I grew up in a predominantly uh, Jewish Christian neighborhood, and I always wanted what they had because they had the cheap, the tree, oh, and all yeah, the presents, yeah, and, yeah. and festive. And you know, we had that little lamp, which sometimes worked, sometimes didn't. And you can only get so many menorahs before the thrill runs out. Or dreidels. <laughs> or dreidels. dreidels. I, I felt the, the, I felt the same way when I was a kid. My next-door neighbor was Catholic, and they always had the big tree, and they got all these giant presents. And my parents would always try and space it out, eight small little gifts, you know, that meant nothing. Right. And, uh, yeah, so if, if I didn't resent being Jewish when I was a kid, I certainly didn't find it very convenient, you know. So. <laughs> yeah, and very solemn. You know, I remember we would, my parents would drive us to temple. We weren't supposed to drive. Mm -hmm. We were supposed to walk on the high holidays. And they would drive us, but drop us off a block away to make it look well, like we like walked. Make you look. No. <laughs> That's why. So the hypocrisy was always like, what is this God thing? And I, I would sit and on, on, I, I would swear we were all aliens. Yeah. I would look up at the stars and go, there's got to be more life than just what's here. And that was also at six years old. Well, fortunately, mm -hmm. you were living in a predominantly Jewish area, so you didn't have to cope with some of the things I had to cope with when I was young and when, when we lived in uh, in Ohio and we lived in a predominantly mm -hmm. non-Jewish neighborhood when I was a kid and my brother, my older brother, he used to get chased and beat up all the time. Mm -hmm. And finally my folks got smart and they moved us to a predominantly Jewish part of town and that made all mm -hmm. that made a lot of difference. But, you know, when that's happening to you when you're a little kid, you... You kind of put your own two and two together and you come up with some kind of answer that usually means you start to feel agnostic. And uh, that's exactly, that's how it was for me. It sounded like... Exactly. So you're six years old, you have this OD experience. When do you recall that you first took a drink or drugs on your own, of your own desire to do it? Probably at the age of 14, I want to say, mm -hmm. aside from my brother trying to get me high with pot, 14, we started going out as kids and buying little bottles, mm -hmm. tequila sunrise in a bottle. 
and uh, MD 2020. Whew. And uh, yeah, it tasted good coming going down, but <laughs> cheese doodles coming up is not a good no, mix. No fun at all. <laughs> Purple and orange is not a good That's mix. That's terrible. And uh, yeah, and I would come home with my head spinning and uh, like, oh, when are we going to do that again? And uh, and I was always the one in my group of friends who was experimental. Uh, I I knew. I just never wanted to stop. But back then I'm in school and I'm at my parents' home, so it's only the weekends or, you know, whenever anybody else was willing to party. It left to my own devices, I, which I was quite often. So I did hit my, my parents, um, especially my mother's pill cabinet, growing older. But you were the one in your group that would be willing to experiment. Does that mean experiment with different drugs like uh, beyond pot to like cocaine or LSD or that sort of thing? All of it. The only thing I've never done is heroin. I shouldn't say that I smoked heroin. I never shot up heroin. I I have done everything. And every time I've done it, it's been to excess. Did consequences begin immediately whenever it was that you started doing that, or were they delayed in coming till some big event happened? You know, Howard, knowing what I know today about um, living a well-examined life, it wasn't so much the physical um, consequences as when I say, you know, I didn't work for person a person I didn't steal from, whether it was money from them, merchandise, time from showing up sick. But the actual, as far as car wrecks and all that, probably came along in my um, teens, 20s. Yeah, life experiences of like, stupid lucky, how did I get out of this? I never wound up in jail. How did you get through school? Were were you a good student? You know, if if grades were counted by how many days you showed up at school, I never would have graduated. (laughs) And, And I graduated without reading a book, cover to cover. Yeah top third of my school. As a matter of fact, we had the SATs because somebody, some yeshiva boy stole them from Albany and started selling them. And I had the copies and got caught. And I did get brought down at the age of 16 to the uh, Brooklyn DA's office. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that was pretty scary. <laughs> well, so what was the outcome from that? My mother cursed them out from here till tomorrow uh-huh. and said, how dare you bring my daughter without notifying her parents? And uh, my, my mother was a character. My mother was uh, beloved by many. She was a great friend, but not the best mother. But she, uh, nothing ever came of it. I was supposed to be suspended and she threatened to sue them. And they did cancel the, um, the test that year. So were your parents involved in your life while you were doing all of this, or were you kind of staying out of contact with them at home and and other places? My childhood was pretty much about my brother, who was a middle child, manic depressive, gay, suicidal, and my mother always trying to fix him. And we're all exactly four years apart. So I lived in my sister's room with my sister, who really didn't want to be bothered by a little sister. So we weren't close. Sure. The closest one I was to my brother, but he was kind of um, not mentally there most of the time. And so mm. when I say I was left to my own devices as a kid, like I don't remember one parent asking me if my homework was ever done. What do, what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to be? Uh, oh, you're so mm-hmm. good at that. Oh, you're so pretty. 
like no encouragement with anything. So I had no ambitions as a kid to do anything. I really didn't. That's the kind of wiring, the hard wiring that I always talk about we get when we're young, too young to be able to resist. I have very much the same kind of story, although my family involved a lot of physical and uh, you know, a lot of yelling and that sort of thing. Sounds like you had some issues with that as well. I huh? did, and, and um, um, one way it came out was with the Crohn's. You know, when you stuff everything and you want to be that good kid because you don't want to rock the boat in the house and, you know, they have too many other things. They, my my dad wound, wound up losing all of his money and was embezzling from the company. And that's how we wound up here in Florida, by the way. It's like we, we sold the house and had to get out of town kind of thing. But no, I, actually, oh my my, um, my parents' friends, their good graces and my grandmother, uh, they schlepped my grandmother down to... Uh, Florida to help pay for the rent and we went uh-huh. three bedroom apartment and and again my mom was sick half the time my dad was with a drink what am I going to do and and I'm just like get me out of here and and you know running with the fast crowd it was the cocaine 80s and um quaalude quaaludes drinking oh my god nightclubs and then coming home and being very solemn. I ran away from home during that period when she was very sick the last year of her life and for about three months, hmm. but, um, but then came back. It just couldn't take it anymore, huh? Well, it, it, it started to smell like a hospital when I came home. Um, it was very sad. And when you can't, when you're a caretaker it, and you can't fix somebody and at the age of 26, I didn't know how to fix them. Uh, I yeah. would, I would take her drugs. I would take her to a doctor and take some of her Demerol before I drove her to the doctor <laughs> just to tolerate <laughs> being there with her. So, yeah, so it was crazy, crazy scene. Very crazy. Yeah. That goes to the answer to most of our questions, I think. No wonder I became an alcoholic and drug addict. That escape, especially to new crowds of people, did you? receive what you needed interpersonally or with regard to your own personal relationships? Did you receive that from the crowds you were running with or were you an outsider? Um, you know, I always felt like an outsider. I mentioned earlier, I'm a loner who happens to love people. And it's so true. I, I don't mind my own company, but I do love people. And I could get along with mm-hmm. anyone. When I'm out, especially today, I I always make sure I converse with somebody in the store that's working and how are you doing today? And, Mm -hmm. and everybody always found it. uh, I've been told I'm a good listener and I'm easy to talk to, but the bad part about that is you pick up a lot of needy people along the way in doing that. Mm So as I gotten older and maintained my sobriety, you know, especially with sponsorship, it's like, I'm, I'm here to give you what I got on how to stay sober, but I'm not your, bank. I'm not your therapist. I'm not your lawyer. <laughs> I get that. That's an, Those are important boundaries and lines to draw, too, especially when we're talking about some of the neediness that shows up in the program amongst people we know. So you told me about the period between teenage and 26, which is when about the time your mom was really sick before she passed away. Did you go on to school after high school or, or uh, did you just move on with your life? Well, considering we had just moved from Brooklyn to Florida, and I, I was working in the garment center before we did that, 
and basically came down here and I was like, well, this doesn't suck, <laughs> you know, like after right. living in, uh, in Brooklyn in an apartment for the last year and I opened up the doors to this apartment where we're on the bay and it's sunny and it's beautiful. And mm-hmm. you know, I spent the next year in the sun sitting on the deck collecting unemployment. <laughs> and great. yeah, you know, I always drifted from job to job until they caught on to whether I stealing from them, whether uh, I, I quit. Before they caught on, I worked in so many retail stores, a lot of doctors, and there was a really scary time where uh, I was calling in my own prescriptions. Yeah, again, I should have been in federal jail. So you were one of those who didn't get caught. Right. Who somebody somewhere is doing your time. Exactly. Because they did and you didn't. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. Were you a functional alcoholic? It sounds to me like you you must have had to be if you could steal and not get caught. But would you consider yourself a functional alcoholic drug addict? Absolutely. (laughs) Until that blackout in 2001. That makes it really difficult, I think, because I, I was the same way. I was functional. And no, so nobody calls you on any of your issues. And as long as you show up and do a reasonable job, nobody's too concerned. But it also means that that bottom that you got to hit before you get into recovery is sometimes a longer way off. Did you, did you find that to be your, the case as well? Absolutely. I mean, it, and especially when you're likable. If people like you, yeah, you know, and you right. make them laugh and they love having you around, they really look over a lot of the, the misbehaviors and stuff. And actually, my boss, the chiropractor, when I would sit in his office and cry. He goes, what's wrong with you? He goes, you're beautiful. People love you. You got everything going for you. Uh, what's going on? I mean, did I tell him I'm drinking every day and I'm abusing drugs all the time? No. Poor me, poor me. Yeah, I get that. That's part of the problem of being an affable drunk or drug addict Mm -hmm. is that, you know, there's nothing about your behavior that would lead people to think you need some help. I mean, when when you're a a morose, down-in-the-mouth drug addict or alcoholic and mean and nasty and everything, people know you need help. But when you're affable and likable, people are willing to put up with you because you're the entertainment for the evening. Right. So at some point, that kind of game stops working for you. Uh, at what point did what point did you feel like you had exhausted all of the uh, patience and tolerance of your friends for your behavior? Well, to be honest, I was isolating big time. The last year of my um, my alcoholism, I was in a room. I'd go to work. My boyfriend and I were not living together, so he didn't see what I was doing. He had no clue what I was doing to get what I needed to get. And um, and it, it became a, a vicious cycle of 24-7. I mean, I could not stop what I was doing. 
And at one point I needed it just to function. And like I said, if it still worked, I would not be here today talking to you. But there was no amount, like when it tells us in the big book, one is too many, a thousand, never enough. It got to that point where it didn't matter how much alcohol I had. It didn't matter how much Oxycontin I had. It wasn't working. Mm. It wasn't that same mm. first high or the party is now begun. For the last seven years of my alcoholism, it was, um, I, I would have wanted to die. It wouldn't have mattered if I woke up or not. Uh, it was more just existing than it was living. So... Was there was there ever a time during that that miserable period at the end, where you reflected back on that little six year old girl and the experience that you had? I I believe I did, because the question always came about like, you know, with seeing everything that goes on in the world, and there's always been something ever since I've been around uh, a major catastrophe and a lot of hatred, a lot of bigotry. And, you know, if there's a God, how can it be so cruel like this? And uh, why do people, why do the good suffer and the, the ones that really should don't? And mm -hmm. yeah, so there would be questions of that. And that's why I say when I did wind up in that four-day detox and I, I slept for a day and a half. So there's really only what is that, a day and a half of meetings that people brought in that I was going to. And if you ask me, Howard, I would tell you that I felt like I was there for 28 days. I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave. I, but that hand touched my shoulder, not the five other people in front of me when we were leaving sure. the lockdown. They said, you don't wait to get a sponsor. Don't wait. And you didn't do that to the four people that just left in front of me. So that's why that day when I went back to that room, that next day, I was grabbing that woman by her shoulder. Would you sponsor yeah. me? And she had just had yeah. surgery on that shoulder to remove some cancer. And uh, hmm. and she said, yes, I'll sponsor you. Please stop squeezing my shoulder. I had surgery. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So this, that was, that was in... That was in 2001. 2001, when I okay. I wound up in detox, yes. Right. Now, when you got back in 2003, what kind of contact had you had with your sponsor during that time? Were you still very much in touch? Absolutely. So your slip was actually a, a very short period of time, huh? Exactly. It was maybe a week or 10 days. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to get the time frames here because 2001 to 2003 sounds like you were out for two years, but actually you were working the program during that 2001 to 2003 period? Yeah. I never stopped going to meetings. Huh. Um, I was still working. I was on that pregnancy, on those painkillers. And when I started abusing them, I would tell my sponsor and I would discuss with the meeting before the meeting, the meeting after the meeting that I'm going to have to pick up another white chip. Yeah. And people really didn't, aside from just seeing me look like Elvis, they had no clue right. what was going on with me because not many except for my sponsor, maybe my inner circle knew what was going on. So yeah. my my sponsor just said, you know, you'll let me know when you're ready to um, do steps uh -huh. or again and start your 90 and 90. And I, I really didn't even have, I didn't even feel bad. Like when I hear people say, I get very sad when I hear people say they lost that time. No. You know, not even from 94, I didn't lose any of it. I willingly gave it up. 
but I didn't lose the precious amount of information and knowledge that I got from being there all that time. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. In fact, there's a, there's something that I say to people all the time, and that is, Terry, you have something I don't have, and that is you have the experience of having been in and gone out and come back. Mm-hmm. I got sober 34 years ago, and I haven't needed to go back out. Not that I haven't wanted right. to, but just about the time that I wanted to, people would show up in meetings or via my sponsor, or something would happen where AA would kind of lasso me back into the middle. But that's, I agree with you 100%. That ex- experience has not been lost. Mm-hmm. The question is, can we learn from it and not let it happen again? Absolutely. And I have been put on pain medication, and I've lost the, the luxury of abusing them. Listen, that's a very slippery slope with a lot of people, and I know this is a program of action, and that's why I have it sponsor that I have today, which is a very disciplined, um, steps-orientated sponsor. And I, I mm. sponsor women, and they're the ones who always save me, Howard. I mm. mean, especially during the pandemic when we couldn't get out and the calls that I would get. Yeah. Just like you said, when you're questioning, is this all worth yeah. it? And I would I would get out of self because a sponsee was calling me with uh, a problem, mm. a new sponsee I'd meet on Zoom would ask me to take them through the steps. So yeah. that commitment of, yeah, I need to stay sober so I could be of service to others. I don't know why this program works, but I know how it works because it tells me on page 58 of the big book, yeah. they're in black and white. And if I continue to do yeah. that, like my sponsor suggests on a daily basis, I mean, at the at 10 years of sobriety, I did work the steps again with a a new sponsor who happens to be a friend of mine that I got sober with, mm-hmm. who who's a gentleman uh, that I was very friendly with. He moved out to California and, and I saw what he was doing with his life. And I said, at 10 years of my sobriety, why am I still coming home and kicking the dog and beating up on my husband? That's not, I'm treating everybody else good except <laughs> right. the people who love me the most. What's wrong with me? <laughs> And I asked him to work the steps with me because I'm obviously missing something. And that's when my spiritual journey, my real spiritual journey began. You kind of had a spiritual awakening at 10 years sober. And continually since then. And continually. That's really amazing. So when, when you came in in 2003, you started working with your sponsor. What were some of the other things that you started to do over the growing term of your sobriety? Well, it was always involvement, always having a job in AA, uh-huh. always having a home group, because I love the, yeah. the sayings. I wear them like pearls. You know, if you don't have a home group, you're homeless. If you don't have a sobriety date, yeah. you know, you're not sober. You know, what is that day? And those things meant a lot to me. And to always have a job in AA, you know, don't be that same thief that comes in and takes everything and then just walks away with all the good. And and the sad part is, yeah, I feel bad for the people that don't have the ability to give this to somebody else. And trust me, everybody's got a job in AA and just showing up at a meeting continually is bringing something. It's showing somebody that hey, it works. They're still here. I always insist with the men that I sponsor that they sponsor other men or find some kind of service orientation, whether it's being on the the CFC committees or being being a treasurer or doing whatever they do, even setting up the chairs. It's like you said, it it ties you in a different way to the program. It gives you different type of accountability. Absolutely. You're accountable to the group. And I, (laughs) I may may feel like drinking, but wait, I got to make the coffee tonight. 
Now, you mentioned earlier something that I wanted to ask you about. You mentioned that when you were working while you were still active in your disease, that you did an awful lot of stealing and other things from employers. Did you have an extraordinarily large eighth-step list? And what was that like making amends for some of the things that you had done when you were in your cups? Until I hit that 10th year, I went back and worked the steps again. Like I was a newcomer is when I seriously looked at that eighth step and ninth step and said, okay, there's some more amends I need to make, especially financially. I remember going with a check in hand to my last boss, who was the chiropractor, and uh, it was a large sum of money. And I said, you know, I just want you to have this back. You know, they were loans and he just, he took the check, but he said, I'm not gonna cash it, but I needed to be willing to let that money go. Uh-huh. And then there were times I, I've been bankrupt twice and once before, I got sober and once during, and that was again at that 10th year of sobriety. Mm-hmm. Now, this is how important it was for me to have a home group. When I moved from North Miami to Fort Lauderdale, uh-huh. it was like moving to another country. You know, don't these people know who I am? Why isn't anybody coming over to me? And I'd, <laughs> I'd show up at meetings early and there would be this click and that click. And after the meeting, you know, we I organized bowling, you know, once a month at my old home group. And I would go to the meeting early to try and fit in and then I would stick stick around after and and there would be these different clicks. And I remember coming out of this one home group because I or group, I needed to find a home group and get a job. And I was spinning around doing a 360 mm-hmm. saying, doesn't anybody go for coffee around here? And one girl came up to me. Now, of course, it wasn't the one girl that I wanted to come up to me. But uh, what am I going to tell her? No, you're not good enough for me to go to coffee with. But I'll never forget people like that. <laughs> you know, like when I. Yeah. Should. But so it's important to me. So then I left to go away with my boyfriend for the weekend. And I had to confess to him, I'm gambling online. I think I'm a poker player and proceeded to lose some more money that I didn't have. And, um, and this was by slipping away. I was slipping of, uh, not being able to fit into a group and, and a light went off in my head. I said, I need to go back to that group and get a commitment. And I went Monday and sure enough, that was when the business meeting was that Monday after the meeting and what was open, the right. treasury. Uh-huh. And I'm like, right, well, I'll do it. So two and a half years. Yeah, it, you know, that's not a coincidence. It's just not. It's it's really not. No. Absolutely. That's God doing for us what we couldn't or, or wouldn't wouldn't do for ourselves. Wow, what a turnaround. So it took 10 years for you to get to the point at which some of the stuff really started to set in. Um, what's your sobriety been like in the last nine years since? Is there any comparison to the first 10 years, or is this a completely different Terry? I'm hoping that it's a different Terry, less consumed with self, more consumed with uh, giving back and making somebody else happy, mm-hmm. uh, bringing a smile to somebody else, being of, of service that way. But, um, but also being good to myself and yeah. spend a lot of time in meditation and and being okay with the limitations I I have because of the chronic pain that I have. How old were you when you first got diagnosed with the Crohn's? I was married to my first husband and I was probably about 30. I always had problems with my stomach as a kid. They diagnosed me with um, IBS and then it was 
colitis, and then they couldn't figure out if it was colitis or Crohn's. Now, watching what my mother had gone through when they did diagnose me with Crohn's, I wanted to throw myself off the terrace right then and there. I was not going to go through what she went through. And especially when they wanted to give me pregnisone, because she always used to say, it's a miracle drug, but the side effects will kill you. And uh, she wasn't too far off. I just had a call this morning from a, uh, a woman in the program who's on a ton of pregnisone and feels like she's relapsed. So I know that feeling. So when you came in, in addition to the alcoholism, you had the, the Crohn's, which was constant pain? Most of the time. Um, I've had other things happen since then. Yeah, you know, it's funny how I'm never sick or don't feel anything when I'm using and abusing, you know, drinking. You know, never even sick with a cold. And then all of a sudden you get sober and everything hurts. <laughs> Sounds like you and I have a lot in common, especially with the, the kind of heritage that we come from. I think there, there's a lot of that innate guilt and shame that just goes with the territory. How do you deal with self-defeating talk? Do you ever have that? Oh, I used to. How did you deal with that? That, if I say in the last especially five years, has been the biggest benefit of all to me. I mean, growing up with the household that I had and not a supportive um, family yeah. or sister or brother. And, you know, that self-esteem issue, you know, I, I heard a, a woman say in a meeting once, I felt prettier, wittier and kittier <laughs> when I drank. And I said, that's it. <laughs> that's me. You know, I, I get yeah. that. And when you don't have that anymore, you know, now what? I never had a lot of ambitions to do anything in life. I mean, and I had somebody push me into my my jewelry business. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to micromanage anybody working for me. It was bad enough if I had to work for you. Uh -huh. So the, that self-defeatist attitude and that self-pity was a big part of my life. And uh, that's what caused most yeah. of my depressing days. Now, since I've worked those steps again, I never knew there was an 11-step morning prayer that said, God, direct my thinking. Let it be divorced of self-pity, self-seeking, dishonest right. motives, fear. So whenever I feel that self-pity come up, I, I immediately turn it to gratitude and how grateful I am for the life that I lead today. And I, I, I look around me and I say, Howard, this is uh, just the best gift that any one of us could could receive and and it's taught me so much about myself and to love myself so oh, yeah. I could better love others and be okay with whatever yeah. I get done every everything could wait I'll, I'll kind of sum it up with one of my all-time favorite stories I heard and believe it or not I think somebody shared it at the meeting that we went to where his sponsor uh -huh. was visiting somebody who was in hospice and dying and he would sit with those uh -huh. late night conversations and he said, and he had so many years of sobriety and he said, knowing what you know uh -huh. now, is there anything in your life you would have done different, you know, now that he was dying? And he looked right at him and he said, I would have worried less. And I, I walked out of the meeting that I heard that in that day at my home group and I, I immediately stopped worrying as much as I used to. And Worrying about my yeah. needs and my myself was a big part of that. And isn't it amazing that it takes what it took to get us to the point where we're open to doing mm -hmm. that kind of stuff? Because I can be about as happy as I choose to be on any given day. 
Uh, I have to be really clear, though, that I'm still an alcoholic, and I'm still the guy who, like you, I, I didn't really have any ambition. The reason for that was because I never had any direction as a kid. It's really tough to know what to do next, but for, for you, what, what have been some of the most memorable uh, gifts that, that you've experienced in your 19 years, let's say even 21 if we count the first go around? Number one, I have to say my relationship with my husband who's been with me for close to 30 years now. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I'm telling you, that blind dog, that uh, seeing eye dog really <laughs> came in handy that day. It really did. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and just being able to appreciate all the people in my life, you know, and especially the ones who get me and know my limitations and that any minute, and I really appreciate that about you, Howard, when I said, um, would you mind if I postpone this? And you didn't even hesitate to say, please, no problem. And those are the people that I seek out today, you know, that understand um, my situation and I had that I have limitations, but I am a loyal Leo. And once you got me as a friend, that's it. But I really do appreciate everything in my life, everything. And that just, Every time I get to sponsor somebody new, every time I get a call from a sponsee that says, you have no idea how much you've helped me. And it, it makes me feel that's mm. all I needed to achieve in my life. That's That made my life worth being here. Two things that I'd like to ask my guests. The, the first question is, if you could go back with what you know today, if you could go back to Terry in the past, which Terry would you go back to to share with her what you've learned that might have changed her life? had she heard it at that age? What, what age would that have been? And what would you have told her? Probably would have been um, during the high school days of, uh, uh -huh. you're so talented, you're so good, you're so worthy of all good things and, and maybe to help. And sometimes to even think about those questions, I'm just grateful to be in today. I really don't even kind of roommate about if anything was miserable in the past, I've forgiven my past. I, I heard Oprah say once that uh, forgiveness is giving up the idea of a better past. That the past that the past could have been any different than what it already was. Yeah, so I've forgiven. I've forgiven the past, my parents, my my siblings, and it is the way it is. One of my guests said, and I love this. But he said, "I'd go back to the the five year old version of me, and I the first thing I'd do is I'd give him a big hug." Oh, yeah, we didn't do that with my family. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mine, mm -hmm. mine neither, mine neither. And I've had to find that, and I found it and more in AA. This podcast is being listened to all over the world to differing degrees, but is there any final message that you'd like to leave for the people listening that might make a difference in somebody's life? The only thing I do 100% is this program. It really is. It's living, mm. which for me is living in 10, 11, and 12. I do a daily inventory. And um, and just mm -hmm. to put the bath down, don't don't beat myself up over the past. And, and your life, you know, start to learn about taking care of you and what makes you tick instead of trying to change everybody else. And, and it's possible just to be here and don't and always have that job in AA. Always have that job, always have that home group, always have that uh, commitment. And your life is going to change just even by osmosis, <laughs> just by being there. It will change. 
you know, we're going from one change to the next and one passing to the next. And at the end of the day, if I can lay my pill- my head down on my pillow and know that I've been a, a decent person mm-hmm. that day, right. A, I haven't drank. B, I've probably been to a meeting and done some service work. So I'm already on the plus side of the scale. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it does a lot for self-esteem and just self-love. If- to me, too. Absolutely. That's, uh, I had to be rid of self. Otherwise, it would kill me. Well, I, I really appreciate you doing this today, Terry. I've just learned so much about you. And in such a short period of time, how well you and I have connected our backgrounds. I mean, my mother uh, was from Brooklyn and had a lot of relatives in, in, in that same part of Brooklyn mm-hmm. that you lived in. But it means the world to me that you would come and share some of the intimate parts of your life as they relate to the disease of alcoholism and drug addiction and your experience in being let's say, redeemed by the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to thank you for doing this. And as I tell all my guests, I love you. And I want to wish you uh, continued success on your sobriety. And the great thing about it is, even though you're down where you are and I'm over here in Texas, we'll still see each other at that London meeting. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you so much for making me feel so welcome there also. I couldn't have gotten a better greeter and a better chair that was there that called on me even when I was in bed with my hair, uh-huh. my two hairs in place. I made sure my camera was on so they'd know it's a live person. Oh, but yeah. I, I'm so grateful to be doing service there. It's a wonderful group of people, and it's got um, long-term sobriety, which is what I was looking for. So Right, and this is good service work, what you're doing Thank right you. here, right Thank now. You. And again, many thanks for doing this, Terry. I'm honored that you asked me, Howard. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Terry S., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please leave a rating or review for the show on your podcast app. That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to all of my interviews by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, Play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.